that was part also of the journey is wondering, Lord, do you have us making a, a across the country move because we're so desperate and we're so thirsty? Your response to Jimmy was, why not consider taking a sabbatical? I was so angry. <laughs> I was I was not expecting that because who who can do that? What normal family can just decide that they were going to vacate their life and um, go on a sabbatical? I mean, that's for pastors and missionaries and not for bankers, which is what Jimmy was. I mean, he'd just been promoted. He had this grand office with a river view that looked like we had all of our stuff together. And yet again, it was that urgency nipping at our heels for our souls. We couldn't stay where we were. Friends, you're in for a treat, as am I. We have the gift today of sitting with a deep-hearted friend and pilgrim. Kara Murphy is a woman of the questions. As she said, she has become a missionary to her very own soul. She's a poet, a teacher, an Irish-bred woman of wisdom. And she has honored this space to bring some treasures to our fellowship from her new book, The Inquisitive Christ. Kara's husband, Jimmy, was a recent participant, graduate of the Become Good Soil Intensive and has tracked with us for some time in this mission and message. And she reached out with her new book. And I took a quick read of it um, as there's a lot of requests and, and asked for endorsements and um, collaboration. And and I was stopped in my tracks. I was reading Fireside at my home one evening. And Kara's book takes us back into the questions that Christ asked throughout the Gospels. And it felt like a returning to something sacred, something vulnerable, something fundamentally essential to the path of an apprenticeship in the kingdom of God. And my first pass was a quick read. And then I went back and like a dog with a bone, as Peterson said, I began to eat the book and gnaw on it, ingest it, and find myself uh, embodying the text and using my sanctified imagination to enter the, the parables afresh through Kara's guidance. And it was rich and I was so excited after reading it in dreaming about having the chance to host Kara and to bring some of her wisdom and her wonderful, messy and beautiful struggling into the deep waters of God and his kingdom in the context of a professional world and being a wife and being a mom. And so I am really excited to take you into this. For those of you looking for something quick, this is not your podcast. Those of you that are looking for a soundbite um, or cliff notes, this isn't for you. But those of you that are among the few that are saying, I want to be a student 
And I want to learn and grow alongside of Morgan and Kara, the like-hearted, the apprentices of God's kingdom. Um, welcome to the table. We have a feast for you. We're going to turn a corner now and dive into episode one. And after this podcast, we'll follow up with a second episode with Kara Murphy, author of The Inquisitive Christ. Let's dive in. Jimmy and I took our first trip to Ireland. We'd been married 10 years. And it was either intensive counseling or going to Ireland. And those were our two choices we decided. Um, And thankfully, we chose Ireland. (laughs) Counseling did come later, very soon later. (laughs) Which I'm not necessarily recommending to all people. (laughs) Maybe start with counseling and celebrate the completion with a trip to Ireland. I agree. It was, well, it was, it was the thin place became the counselor and it was actually really beautiful. So again, just how the Holy Spirit works. We, a book fell into our hands um, by David Adam called A Desert in the Ocean. I don't know if you've read this, Morgan, but it is a very small book, Um, but it begins with the prayer of St. Brendan and We had no reason why we had picked this book up, Um, but we ended up staying, uh, and we didn't even realize it, we ended up staying at the foot of the mountain that St. Brendan, who is an Irish saint, climbed and decided that he was going to go out into the deep with God. Um, And his prayer is so, it's so profoundly beautiful. uh, It's a prayer full of questions. It begins with, shall I abandon O King of Mysteries, the soft comforts of home. And it ends with, Shall I take my tiny coracle across the wide sparkling ocean? O King of glorious heaven, shall I go of my own choice upon the sea? O Christ, will you help me on the wild waves? And Jimmy and I took a stanza and memorized that prayer um, each day that we were there for the 10 days. Mm. And without even realizing mm. it, Morgan, I was, I was ingesting the questions, and they were good for my soul. And we knew something, something really grand and powerful was happening in that mm. time. Um, we, we kind of joke, but, but very seriously, we were like missionaries to our own souls by doing that and going there because something awoke, something really beautiful. And um, actually just recently memorized another Irish poem. It's so beautiful. It says, there's something sleeping in my breast that wakens only in the West. There's something in the core of me that needs the West to set it free. It's it's an Irish poet who is speaking of the west coast of Ireland, which is where we were completely, you know, agricultural, a lot of sheep farms, not a lot of people, um, and this raw beauty that was almost painful to have access to on a regular daily basis. So mm. uh, basically going there, um, experiencing that, And then that really launched for us a year of knowing we were never going to be able to be content in our own small story. So 
at that point, Jimmy, you know, he, he began having access to some of the Wild at Heart um, uh, boot camps. We'd been reading for years, John. Um, and, like, I was watching him come alive in a way that I'd never seen him before. Uh, we, because I was the one with all the answers, um, there was a lot of times that, I, that Jimmy looked to me for answers and relied upon that. And that really hurt us. Um, that really created some bad habits in our marriage. But there was something about him becoming alive in Colorado and me being completely lost in my story and he came for me. He came and showed up in all of his aliveness. And that's a huge part of the story is the rescue that Jimmy undertook for my heart, my true heart. Um, and welcoming the questions to the table. And this is, you know, this is more of a chronological piece, but of course, you know, we had in our hearts um, to come and speak with you. We, we literally bought plane tickets to come for, for Jimmy to come and have a Chipotle lunch with you in a blizzard. And again, it's one of those moments where we just smile because we know the Holy Spirit was in that. And Morgan, during that time with Jimmy, which almost got canceled because of the blizzard. I don't know if you remember that. I do. Man. Um, and, and it was interesting because we were going to Colorado Springs to to vet it as well for a potential place to live. Because we, mm-hmm. our place here in Virginia, um, we felt we needed to flee or we would fall back to sleep very quickly. Yes. Um, mm. And we had experienced thirst-quenching water in the material of Become Good Soil and Wild at Heart. And we were thirsty. And so naturally, if you're thirsty, you go where there's water. And so that was that was part also of the journey is wondering, Lord, do you have us making a, a across the country move because we're so desperate and we're so thirsty? Um, your response to Jimmy was, why not consider taking a sabbatical? And um, when Jimmy got home from his time with you or to the hotel, and he told me that's what you had said, I was so angry. <laughs> I, was, I was not expecting that because who, who can do that? What normal family right. can just decide that they were going to vacate their life and um, go on a sabbatical. I mean, that's for pastors and missionaries and not for bankers, which is what Jimmy was. I mean, he'd just been promoted. He had this grand office with a river view that looked like we had all of our stuff together. And yet again, it was that urgency nipping at our heels for our souls We couldn't stay where we were and stay awake. And we desperately wanted to stay awake. We wanted more with God. 
and we mm. knew that there was more, but we had no clue how to go about finding it. So um, when you when you recommended that, it was a, it was so disruptive. It was so incredibly disrupted. At the same moment, you also handed him Dan Allender's book, um, Sabbath, and um, we took all of that home. And we're spending some time praying. And it it really, it, it could not have been more clear by God's Spirit that He had issued that invitation to risk through you. It was from Him. And um, we decided that we were going to live with questions and not answers. And you didn't set out to do that, right? I mean, your hearts were seeking God, but the context in which you found yourself really facilitated staying in the shallows. Exactly, exactly. We were driven by need. I mean, really, truly, it, it was a situation of, of desperation. I mean, Jimmy and I, I mean, we were like dogs on a hunt. I mean, honestly, that's how mm. I would describe our need for more of God and our complete confidence that we were not going to find it by continuing the same path we'd been walking. And if, if Kara, if people would have watched your life at the time externally, I mean, I think it's fair to say you guys were kind of killing it, right? Like you have vocational work. Like you said, he's got the corner office, a view of the river, got these beautiful people with beautiful children trying to do the right thing. And I love in the book, you use these words in that place where you said, we had been busy making a life for ourselves. We were busy making a life for ourselves. And accidentally, we embraced a paradigm of mistrust. I love that phrasing because we don't set out to do that, but we understand that something's driving us. There's some energy and there's some sense of, is God really trustworthy? And my actions reveal my beliefs that I've come to a place that I simply don't believe that. And, and you went on to say, uh, and this phrase stopped me in my tracks when you said, what we really wanted was soul quiet. Our world had gotten loud. It, got, it, it had gotten loud with people, with places, and with things. I mean, how many of our friends out there joining us in this conversation could say that, that my world, it, whatever else it is, it is busy with a paradigm of mistrust, and it's so loud with people, places, and things. That is the cultural air that we breathe. If we don't push against that, that's where, by default, we're going to find ourselves very easily. I mean, that's why Dallas says the number one key to intimacy with God is ruthlessly eliminate the hurry from your lives. And mm. we were all about the hurry. There was, there was no more of God that we could have in the space we were giving him. We, we had to flee. We had to jump ship. What I hear you saying is there was more of God available, yes. but the world in which you architected had no more room to receive him. Exactly. Right? Exactly. It, like the plate was full. Um, one mentor said it this way, if 
I no longer want to live in the house that I have built. Mm-hmm. Right? That's it. Like, but my, Kara, my question to you in this place is, but you guys hit eject. Like, no one does that. Like, when I proposed it to Jimmy, it was the spirit of God in me, but I'm offering what I most need, right? And and honestly, what I'm living, I believe we're anointed when we offer out of the integrity of what we've lived. So I wasn't offering something I wasn't pursuing myself, but I was offering it saying, yeah, this is madness. And I don't have an answer for how you do it, but you guys hit eject and you went to Ireland. You quit your jobs. This wasn't your first Irish trip, but this was a, we are closing up the house that we built and we are shipping overseas. And so like, help me understand what was the linchpin where at some point in time, you actually hit the eject button and you found yourself with a parachute. Oh man, it became so clear to us that it wasn't a command of the Lord. It was an invitation. Mm. And that made all the difference. We, We knew he was saying to us, you don't have to do this. But if you want to, I have something incredible in store. If we didn't have that clear word, I think we would have stopped in our tracks any number of decisions that we had to make that led up to us moving to Ireland. Um, But we did. We had that very clearly. We knew he was there waiting. He, He, of course, was with us where we were, but we also knew Something incredible was in store for us if we only just could take that step, that eject, as you said. And one of the things he made very clear along with it was it wasn't just, um, oh, take a trip with your family um, and then come home. He said to make everything available to him. And we we took him very literally. I, I don't, like you said, I wouldn't recommend that for every person. Um, mm-hmm. But for us, we knew that's what it was. We did not have a home to come home to if we had changed our minds and said, you know what? Actually, that house we built that was working really well for us, I think we'll go back there. We didn't have it. Literally and physically, we did not have it. But also figuratively, Morgan, there was no coming back. Mm. Um, so <laughs> the day we left, we gave our key to the realtor. We said, put it on the market. It sold within 24 oh hours, full price cash offer. It was no longer ours. We had no home. Jimmy said goodbye to the bank and everyone there thought he was insane. Like maybe he was having a midlife crisis or some kind of nervous breakdown, Um, but he did it. Oh man, just the courage for that man to to say no so that he could say yes to what God was inviting. That, I mean, I just will never, never stop honoring that in him. And, you know, I still kept my job because I, I am a professor online, and that's a beautiful gift. That was how the Lord 
sustained us financially so that we could go on adventures um, with him. But honestly, Morgan, it, it, was, it was the most painful, troubling time of our entire lives. I mean, you think you go to this beautiful place. We were situated in, I mean, in your imagination, I know most people probably think of an Irish cottage in a green field surrounded by sheep, maybe overlooking the wild Atlantic way. That was where we were. The, the beauty was indescribable. And yet we were wrestling with questions like Jacob was wrestling with God mm. the entire time we were there every single day we were there it was it was almost as if god knew we would need profound beauty to balance profound question and mm. pain um and then this is where this is where the part where we can we can encourage our friends so bef- right before we went both jimmy and i did undertake intensive counseling so we we went with our luggage. We could sense we were carrying a lot of luggage to God in Ireland, and He was going to help us take each item and article out of our bags with us and look at it with us, and then send us out for a hike when we got overwhelmed, and then we'd come back and have tea with him and he'd look at more and you know gosh through the eyes of our children our daughters our daughters at the time were ages five and six um and just how they would look at us with so much trust Morgan and we would look at each other and both Jimmy and I could see in each other's eyes we were scared to death but we were we were with God we were for the first time in our lives having a space for the questions and the uncertainty and the doubts and the mm. griefs and the wounds. Kara, can I take you to a moment in Ireland um, that you wrote about that I so appreciate you, you show up with a lot of luggage, you've hit ejected, and you're surrounded by physical beauty, physical margin, and it reveals the unrest in your soul. And there's a story you tell about a swim, about what you name as a foolish swim that actually was a parable of sorts that really got to unearthing some very fundamental beliefs that um, needed to be excavated in your soul can you take us back to that story? Um, because I'd love to visit what God brought through that. So the culture around us is always telling us that things are not as they seem and that there should be an exposure uh, right underneath the surface of, of that fraud. And so I think very much Jimmy and I being a product of that generation, which is every generation, but for our particular generation, just really kind of that bitter cynicism that we were carrying. And and that's part of the swim, is we step out into the water. This is you and Jimmy. Yes. We step out into the water. It's freezing, like 40 degree temperature water. Um, and, And we're swimming out to the pier 
And what we realize is that as we are underwater and we're swimming out to this pier far off in the distance, um, is our bodies grow numb, right? Um, we can't any longer feel our arms or our legs and uh, swimming becomes more difficult. But then when we turn around after touching the pier and try to come back to shore, um, the current is against us. And so I use that story as a parable of what is happening to us in our souls. We are kind of sucked into this idea that there's no one that we can trust, um, particularly God. And the only, the only one that we can trust is ourselves. Hmm. Kara, in your book, you use these words to describe that moment where you say, we the image bearers do not trust the image we bear. God, the image giver, is deeply misunderstood. We keep seeing through the eyes of betrayal, expecting to find him exposed as a divine fraud. What is it, Kara, that as you felt this current and you realized something was against me and it, and it exposed this sense of what if God is a divine fraud? What if he cannot be trusted? And so um, I'm curious where you went when that was exposed in you of, though I love God, I have actually also cultivated a deep mistrust. And that's led me to where I am. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I had to grieve the ways in which mistrust had been inbred in me through the world, through my own wounding by others, and through the ways that I I was an untrustworthy person in God's kingdom. And I think I had to bring that before God, all the while experiencing His overwhelming affection and goodness. Again, it was, it was the exposure of, of the belief that he might be a fraud and how scary that is to think through with God as, a, as someone who loves God. And yet at the same time, undeniable, tangible portraits of his abundance and affection for me at the same moment. And, and, and it, it was just overwhelming. And, you know, I use that story and tie it in the book to the story of Peter, you know, falling below the waves as he tries to walk to Jesus because he experienced that same desperation that I experienced. I need to get to Jesus and I will walk wherever I need to walk to get to more of Jesus. And yet, even as he was on that journey to him, he fell. He fell under the water that mistrust of Jesus being able to hold him in the process and in the journey was too much. It, it's too heavy. It sinks us. Mm. But in that moment, Jesus' hand is there to pull him and lift him back up. 
in my mind's eye, Peter's not even wet. You know, so it's it's bringing that mistrust to the table with God and allowing Him to address it versus trying to either ignore it or continue to swim and tread water until we're so exhausted that we can't stay afloat any longer. He'll meet he'll meet that question. And part of what I loved about discovering all of the questions he asked in the gospels was he meets that question with more questions. And somehow that creates a dialogue. And then that's where we begin. That's the place of beginning with our doubt and our mistrust and our secret, secretly held belief that God might be a fraud. Hmm. Kara, the way you captured that story in your book um, just really took me there. I felt like my soul, my mind, I was... I embodied the story and found myself on the boat. I would just love to um, invite our friends into that story in this moment. They rowed from shore with full stomachs, the first they could remember in weeks. As they maneuvered their open vessel through calm waters and light breezes, they could almost feel the smile of God cresting on each wave. Seafoam, teeth and wide, glad grin riding bareback on watery haunches. At this moment, the God that could bridle the sea was real. He filled their gullets with fish and their bowls with bread. They trusted because they had tasted. He'd insisted they go ahead without him. He'd promised to catch up, but nobody knew how. They had the boat. They had the crew. Jesus had nothing with him but his own two legs, not even an old donkey to plod the narrow path that skirted the lake. They took their time on the evening crossing, thinking they'd surely need to return and fetch the absent-minded rabbi. I love that. As evening crept into the sky, the twinkling mischief of the day grew to an offended sea of growing crests and troughs. The last of the sinking sun wiped the smile of God from the water. The men dropped the mainsail and stowed the meager gear. They didn't like the hostile expression of the sky. They spent the night bailing the boat, trying to keep the sea in the sea where she belonged. The relentless battering caused her to spin like a top. A few of them leaned white-knuckled over the side and fed the fish the contents of a miraculous dinner. Even in fear, Peter smiled to himself. All fish return to the sea, he muttered, remembering his graying father saying the same. By wee morning, they were clinging to gnarled ropes and oars in the hope of the coming sun. They rowed and rowed their boat, and they were no closer to either shoreline. The hour grew darker than ever. With it, the sea, the skiff rose and sank, matching the rhythm of waning belief. Peter wondered why Jesus had sent them on. If this was some test for an eccentric schoolmaster, it was with those questions that he first spotted something odd in the water. No, it was something odd on the water. It was too small to be a vessel. What kind of sea creature could swim upright? 
The others saw it too, and a common scream of terror and wonder leaped from the boat and was carried off by the hungry wind. They stared hard into the distance. It looked like a bearded man, crowned with sea spray, billowing with wind-whipped robe like a sail. Someone cried out, it's Neptune! And they all howled with fright and disbelief. So much for orthodoxy. As the god came nearer, they saw that he meant to pass them on their stern. He hadn't even looked in their direction. Peter squinted against the salty bite of wind. He'd know, he'd know that profile anywhere. It is the Lord. Peter bellowed, standing so fast that he knocked his head on an unsecured oar that slammed against the gunwale. And when he looked again, Jesus was looking back. He couldn't discern the expression in the dark, but Jesus's eyes were glowing with piercing question. The figure called out to them, speaking their names as one who knew them. It sounded like him. It looked like him. They couldn't know for sure. If it's really you, then ask me to come to you. Peter heard himself shout. He wished afterward that he'd just kept his flapping trap shut. Come on then, Jesus replied, as if inviting Peter for an evening's leisure stroll. Steadying himself with an oar, he balanced on the rocking lip of their skiff. The breath before he jumped, he wondered what he was doing. He was suspended above himself, watching the whole moment, and yet unable to intervene. When he leaped, he expected immersion. What he got was glistening earth, so solid it jarred his knees and knocked the breath from his lungs. He looked at Jesus, then back at the boys then back at Jesus. A huge Peter grin splitting his face in two. He roared with laughter. Jesus roared back. He picked up one foot and stomped it down as a test. He didn't even make a puddle splash. He started to walk toward the laughing Jesus, one surreal step at a time. He was halfway there when he felt the pulsating current beneath his feet. One gnarly wave rolled between them, and for a moment, he lost sight of Jesus. Seeing was always believing. He mistrusted what supported his enormous frame. Just as if the ground had dropped away, he felt emptiness beneath his feet and seawater choking his throat. Help! He coughed as he surfaced. In the next moment, he was grabbed with a steel grip and found himself standing beside God-made flesh. He was completely dry. Jesus didn't hesitate. He reached down, he grabbed his hand, and he said, faint heart, what got into you? What do you hear, friend, in that, in reading your book back to you and sharing with our friends in that story of Peter? You, you were there when you wrote that. What did you see? What did you feel? I know that breath, that pause, when one foot is still on the lip of the boat and the other one is midair. As I hear you read that back to me, I am taken back to that moment of decision to risk trust, even when the evidence is against it. 
I love that in that story, Jesus was passing by the boat and the scripture text tells us that he was intending to pass them by. I think that is so curious. Mm. Mm. But there was an invitation issued. It wasn't a command. It was an invitation to come. And then you have the question. Man, that, that question that meets Peter's surfacing from the sea of mistrust, of doubt, of exhaustive treading of water. The question is, what got into you faint heart? And what occurred mm. to me in my story, as well as this story, is that I would have expected Jesus to pull Peter up and be like, that was awesome, man. You did something so risky with me, and it worked for a little while, and, you know, good for you. Um, yes. That's what I would have expected. But Jesus doesn't do that. And I write in the book, he wants to address not the trust that we possess, but the trust that we've lost. Because Jesus is not satisfied with anything but our whole hearts, our integrated mm. selves. And that just makes me love Him all the more. And I love that, again, He uses the question in order to get to that lack of trust, the trust that's been mm -hmm. lost, the trust that's been stolen, or the trust that we have given way, we've just given over. Um, he uses his questions in order to bring it back to fullness and wholeness. And yeah, Peter's story is my story. I, I think Peter's story is everyone's story. We've all been there. Kara, I, I so appreciate in this book, you take us back to the questions that Jesus poses to all of us that we, you know, Dallas says, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity and unfamiliarity breeds contempt. We're so close, um, us apprentices in the kingdom to the text that we forget to enter into it and to feel it and taste it, to see it, embody it. You take us into Christ's questions. What if the salt loses its saltiness? Do you see these great buildings? Have you anything to eat? Still, do you not know me? How can you ask, where is the Father? Why are you sleeping? What do you want me to do for you? Why are you trying to kill me? Chapter after chapter, you take us into the richness, the depth and breadth of the questions that Jesus asked and the questions that you're suggesting he's continuing to ask to us. I want to ask you, if you were sitting with a friend, what question do you wish they would be asking. If, what, is, what is one of the questions that you have found in this process of being the inquisitive apprentice in the kingdom where you say, 
This question has become very helpful. It is a good one. I'm glad you asked. Every day for me is different on which question I perceive that he is asking. But for a while now, I would say the question that is most weighing on my shoulders and not weighing in a heavy burdensome way, but just it has kingdom weight is his question. What is it that you want me to do for you? Because for me, that gets to the heart of some places of intimacy that I am still withholding from Jesus. And I think that that's a really good question to begin with because it is intensely individual. It's not neutral. You can't answer that question for me, Morgan, and I can't answer Mm -hmm. it for you. And there's something really important about walking that particular question out with Jesus, getting into desire, and is it okay to desire? Getting into the desires that we have that are good but have been corrupted, but recovering the goodness from those, the original intention behind the desire He has placed in us. But also there's just something really really friendly, really conversational to have that dialogue with Jesus. Really good, close, intimate friends share their dreams and desires. You don't, mm. you don't do that with someone you don't trust and someone that is not safe. Um, we hardly even do it with ourselves sometimes because it's scary. It's another mm. risk, the risk to naming what we want with God and what we want um, just for ourselves, the people God is making us to be. I love the Dallas Willard um, quote. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it because it's just so good. He, he says, God is in the business of making us into the kind of person he could empower to do what we want. And Dallas is very clear in (laughs) saying that so strategically. Kara, can you read that one more time? I just don't want to rush there. Those words are particular and powerful. God is shaping us to become the kind of person He could empower to do what we want. Desire is a risky thing. It's fraught with peril on every side. And I love in the book, the subtitle for this section on desire and this question of what do you want, you title a dirty word. It's just so good. It's so good. You say this question of what do you want, you say it contains extraordinary complexity because it is not, nor will it ever be rhetorical. Jesus is sincerely curious. I was out on a run this morning and had uh, some intense warfare last night and had a um, demanding day today. 
And I just knew I needed God. I just needed to put myself in proximity. You know, Dallas says that grace is, is God acting. And so the practices of our spiritual disciplines are making ourselves available, mm-hmm. doing the thing in our power to make ourselves available to God to do what we cannot do on our own. And so I just knew, put on running shoes, get in the sunrise, feel the weather, see the sun. And I rarely run with music, but I felt like God was impressing me and just crank the worship. And I had to go to an old song that was just a conduit of the life of God. And it led me to this place of God saying, what do you want? I mean, right into your question right into your question, Kara. And I love where you say, Jesus wants to know sincerely what we spend our minutes and dollars looking for, our weekends and our downtimes. It is intensely individual. There is no neutrality when it comes to want and no one else can answer this in my stead. But what we do, Kara, with desire, when we are choose to be vulnerable, and authentic, bringing our desire to God and to the community, it, it, it ushers in the kingdom of God. On, on page 86, um, I'm just looking at my notes as I went my second pass through the book. So I raced through the book, my first reading, expecting not to endorse it. And then I have gone back again and again, just marinating and grabbing pieces and just savoring it. And so I'm looking at my notes and you take a huge risk in sharing with us, your readers, um, your response to what do I want? Um, and you start with the words, here goes. And, and actually, I'd like you to read that to us. Would you be willing Yes. So Kara, what do you want? Here goes. What rises in me is manifold, complex. My family. West Coast Ireland. Writing. Celtic disciplines of silence and solitude. Adventure, hearing my father play. (laughs) Healing, pursuing the hearts of others. Beauty. I know it goes even deeper. I want excitement. Boredom feels like death. I want safety. I want to feel comfortable and secure. I want love. I hunger to be pursued for who I am. I want an anesthetic to numb any pain that hurts me. I want fulfillment and purpose, something to drive away the empty pit in my soul. And like the blind man, I want to be seen, seen deeply. When I look for any of these desires apart from Jesus, I will never find them. 
in the margin of my notes on this page, here's what I wrote in response to what you read. I want to be friends with her. I want to know her and to know her God. I think what I'm so struck by is the willingness that you invite us into to risk being honest with what we want allows our hearts to be accessible not only to God and to others, that desire is actually not the enemy, that desire is the fuel. And it's messy and complex. I love that you use those words, manifold and complex, and you're, you're naming the aesthetic to numb and you want safety. And you look in many places for those desires, but the desire um, cannot be dismissed. It has to be redeemed. It has to be nurtured and nourished. And one of the revelations you go on to, Kara, that just really moved me, it was a a true revelation in my heart, is you say, God wants what we want. That as image bearers, that imago day that's within, we can come to appreciate that God wants to be loved as we want to be loved. God wants to be known as we want to be known. And so as you risked offering your true vulnerable desire, as I read this text, I found my heart turning to God, asking him, Father, what is it that you want? What is it that you want? And even on the run this morning, for example, in the sunrise, I was worshiping and just receiving and could feel just the like a luminosity of God, like filling my body. And then as as my heart just rested, I could turn to him, Father, what is it that you want? And I could feel him asking me to intercede for some particular people where two hours ago, it felt like a burden. And in this moment, it was a privilege. And I was just enacting the kingdom of God on their behalf. It came only through the door of desire and being honest with the question, what do I want? It's surprisingly freeing to read that out loud to you. Why so? They've got to have a voice, and they've got it in this space. They are not going to go away. And in fact, they're only going to get stronger. And I believe all of those things that I named is That is where God wants to meet me in my true heart. And so by being able to write them, which was scary and vulnerable, knowing that others would read them, but then even to be able to speak them out loud, it's it's so freeing. I feel like I'm linking arms with, with friends and introducing you to who I am. And who I am is good. Mm. And it, it, I do want to be known. And that's just, it, it's a rare and beautiful space to be able to do that. But that's then, that's like the process of holding the desire, not knowing when and how fulfillment will take place. That is the pain. That is the place that can be one of the hardest spaces, I believe, with Jesus. It's that Mm. space between naming desire and, well, I'll start here. 
the space between him asking the question, what do you want? And then naming, that's a hard space, but it's also freeing. But then the space between naming and then any kind of fulfillment of those desires, that is a, a pain like no other. You know, it's that guttural, I, I, I don't know how other people desire, but when I desire, it, it, it comes from my gut. It is a longing that is akin to labor and delivery. It, I feel it. It is, it is an intense experience. And um, I think that's a good thing, but it, it, it doesn't make it any easier when I can offer my desires and not necessarily see any kind of fulfillment in them in that moment. Friends, these are deep waters. And thanks to Kara, we've covered a lot of ground. Hopefully, like me, this has simply incited more curiosity, more hunger, and more thirst. And as Kara said, when we are thirsty, we go to the water. So I want to pause before we race off to the next thing, because ultimately, Become Good Soil podcast and mission is about cultivating the path and process over time of experiencing God, being transformed, made whole and holy as men and as women. And so before we just race off after sitting in content, I want to pause and experience, let some of this content, this dialogue, these ideas, and the questions that Kara has brought to us today to sink in and to allow us to have an encounter with God. Um, if we so desire. In the podcast, I love that Kara said the words of Dallas where he, God, is in the business of making us into the kind of people that he can empower who can do what we want. And so I want to take that idea and I want to go back to that central question that Kara brought to us in this first episode of what is it that you want me to do for you? It's a question that Jesus posed, not as rhetorical, but as utterly true, utterly personal, and utterly present tense. The heart of God the heart of God that pleads to be one heart with us and one mind with us. That heart asks us, what is it that you want me to do for you? And so here in our story, Father, Jesus, and Holy Spirit, wherever we are, we, we, we come towards you. We turn our gaze afresh towards you. Jesus, we ask by the power that you enact in the heavens that you would gather our scattered parts. God, you would wrap up the pieces of us that have uh, tended to stay in the shallows out of mistrust, 
out of fear, using distraction as a medication or busyness as a safe sort of false security from plunging into the depths, the depths of what you have planted in our hearts and what you whisper to us about all that's true and good and beautiful and that which you are preparing for us, but that which also needs our participation and response. And so friends, I invite you, wherever you are in your spirit, to go somewhere that is a geography that's, that's really vibrant with life for you, that's safe, that's meaningful, that's fraught with beauty and the things that make your heart feel alive and known. It might be a, a simple bench that you picture. It might be an ocean or a mountain or landscape. It might be wide open spaces or it might be being lost in a crowd in an urban environment. But notice what makes your heart feel well and known and find yourself in a safe place, in a place where you could sit down and observe it all in your soul and notice what you smell, notice what you see, notice what you hear. As you sit there, Allow your soul to receive the gift of Christ himself coming to sit next to you right here in this place. And you sit together and there is well-being. There's an ease. There's a safety. There's a provision. There's a care for you. And there's a knowing. And together you sit in silence and you look out in this view and you take it in together. That God sees what you see and delights in the things that you delight because that's why he made you and that's how he made you. And in time, Jesus turns to you and says to you as a son, as a daughter, as a friend, he names you, he calls you by name and says, what is it that you want me to do for you? So friends, let's just pause for a moment and let Jesus ask you that question and invite your soul to show up and be present to him. Let's pause together and linger in this space. Friends, it feels important to remind us today that Jesus loves to make the impossible possible. He transcends time and he lives in the eternal. He transcends death. The scripture 
announces, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? He lifts our eyes up into the heavens to allow us to ever again open the narrow gate here and now, in this moment, in our story, and recover the narrow path that leads to life. So Jesus, I do pray that your power will come to our friends all around the globe as they sit with you in this space, as we take courage in being very honest with that which we want to become the curious ones, to want, to want, to be inquisitive, to know the inquisitive Christ and to recover that inquisitive heart that he has set within us. You have set within us, God, as your image bearers. God, I pray that you would take us out of the shallows, that deep calls unto deep, and that you would shepherd us through your power and your grace into the more that you have for us. Come, Father, come, Jesus, and come, Holy Spirit. We are yours. We choose to trust you, and we choose to believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, this is episode one of a two-part episode where I have the privilege of being with my friend, Kara Murphy, and fellow sojourner and pilgrim, thirsty, deep-hearted one, and a woman of the questions who gave us the gift of this book released to the world called Inquisitive Christ. I encourage you not simply to read it, but to eat that book, as Peterson suggests, to chew on it, to gnaw on it like a dog with a bone, to ingest it, and to recover the questions that Christ has presented first thousands of years ago to his very first apprentices, and today to us, the few, the happy few that are saying yes to God and his kingdom. You can find a direct link to the Inquisitive Christ on the becomegoodsoil.com post for this podcast. And you can also find a link to Kara's website, which has more offerings from what God's entrusted to her care. And that's www.karaltmurphy.com. Friends, thanks for joining us. And we will soon be turning to episode two with Kara, so be sure to check it out in the near future. Thank you.